from WRHU in Hempstead, New York. This is Getting to the Root. We explore issues in depth and shed light on important topics that you won't hear on your day-to-day news broadcast. Covering topics of local, national, and international importance while bringing community voices to center stage. Ben Abrams here. This is Getting to the Root. This week, our executive producer, Naila Andre, speaks with Elaine Fagan from Child Abuse Prevention Services. That's a Long Island-based organization dedicated to bettering the lives of people in their community, especially the victims of abuse. Here's Naila. I'm Elaine Fagan, executive director of CAPS, Child Abuse Prevention Services. Um, So Child Abuse Prevention Services is... Long Island-based, correct? Right. So CAPS is a Long Island-wide organization dedicated to preventing child abuse and bullying. And we do this through um, using the power of professionally trained community volunteers to present prevention through education workshops to Long Island school-aged children. One of the things that we do is we develop a number of different curriculum to address the issues of abuse, bullying, sexual harassment, date rape, and internet safety. So we develop these curriculum, we field test them, and then we train community volunteers to go into the schools and present these programs to students. What kind of inspired this organization to be founded? Because these are all very important topics that you've brought up that don't get enough attention. So what? how how did you guys decide this is what we want to focus on? So actually, CAPS has been in existence since 1982. And when we started out, we were originally a child abuse prevention organization. And at the time, we had developed a program for high school students uh, whereby we would train volunteers, go into the schools, and run these prevention workshops for high school students on child abuse prevention and positive parenting. So it was the feeling in 1982, so we're going back a good 36 years, that There were a number of students who might have been affected by abuse, might not be going on to any higher education at the time, and uh, needed to know something about abuse and how it can be prevented. So uh, as most people know uh, about the cyclical nature of abuse, when uh, a child is abused, they may grow up with a greater potential for being an abusive parent. So we wanted to intervene in the cycle. But through the years, we've evolved. And when, although we started out in child abuse prevention, then we moved into a program on date rape prevention and sexual harassment prevention. And then in the early 90s, we took on the issue of bully prevention. We had heard from a number of teachers across Long Island, from students, from parents, that the issue of bullying uh, was becoming much more prominent. And we did a lot of research and developed a number of programs to address the prevention of bullying. So can you speak a little bit about the kind of adapting that that CAPS has done? Because like you were saying, you guys have been around since the 80s, and a lot of the services or the things that you mentioned earlier, like cyberbullying and things like that, those are newer things. And you can see how maybe other organizations who don't adapt well to something that's clearly, I guess, you know, ever-changing. How do you guys know, like, to keep your finger on the pulse, basically, to know what's going on in schools to 
you know, adapt your curriculum? That's, um, that's a great question. So the fact is we're in about 150 schools each year with our programs. We're in schools, in elementary schools, uh, doing our bully prevention and child abuse prevention program. We're in middle schools doing our internet safety programs and sexual harassment prevention programs, and in high schools uh, working in the area of date rape prevention. But what we've seen, because we do have such a pulse on what's going on, uh, because we're in so many schools, we're listening to the teachers, we're listening to the kids, um, we're, we're doing the research, and with that, we're able to evolve um, so that we're adding new programs uh, like our internet safety and cyberbullying programs, uh, which we um, researched at the, in the late 90s when we started to see that uh, internet safety was becoming more and more of an issue uh, among kids. Could you kind of speak about how the work that you have done has kind of evolved over time? Like, how has bullying changed? So, so it's very interesting. You know, when we started out and we were looking at the issue of bullying, um, it was in the, the early 90s. And, you know, there was a certain feeling in the, the wider community and across the country that bullying was sort of a rite of passage, that this was, um, that all kids experience it that um, this is, you know, this is just the way things are. So we had to really delve into this and look at what, um, what bullying is and how we could uh, change the, the, the feelings, the attitudes um, of people, that this was more than just a rite of passage, that no child should be subjected to bullying, and that um, these, this was an issue that needed to be dealt with. So we started out with that. We, we held focus groups uh, with students and teachers and, and parents to, uh, to really look at what was going on in the community, what was going on in, in our schools. And then using the research, we developed programs. And, um, you know, that was wonderful. But who would have thought, starting in about the late 90s, in um, 2000, 2001, 2002, that all of a sudden the issue of cyberbullying would uh, come to the fore? I mean, that was not even, you know, in the early 90s, the internet was, you know, was nothing the way it is today. Social media has has changed um, the way our kids communicate the way everyone communicates. So we've had to evolve with this. We've had to make sure that what we present to, to kids, the programs that we do, are relevant, um, that they are current, and so that um, and that they are really honest. Uh, so you know, this we we've, we've evolved. Our programs have evolved, and we use our students. Um, and we use our volunteers who are in the classroom and speak directly with our students to, um, to let us know what needs to be changed so that we, we're always relevant and current. So how is it that you guys kind of stay inspired or stay um, willing to do this kind of work? Because I can imagine, I think, maybe with stories that you hear, it can be a little sad, it can be a little grim. So for, to do it for multiple decade, you know, how do you guys keep going? Yeah, you're right. You're right. We hear some horrific 
cases of child abuse. We hear about uh, egregious cases of bullying and cyberbullying that's going on. But what keeps us going is the fact that we know we're making a difference. We know when we go into a classroom and we're talking with a, a group of six or seven-year-old kids about child abuse and a kid comes up to us after class and says, you know, my dad hits me with a belt and leaves marks. Uh, we know that uh, that child is going to get some help, that um, the school is going to intervene, they're going to call the hotline, and um, perhaps we're going to intervene in that cycle of abuse. So it's those types of stories that, that really keep us motivated to, to do the work that we do. So how do you guys decide what kind of services go to which schools, you know, like since there's such a variety of things that you do provide, since, you know, you're saying you're in over 150 schools, how do you determine that? And kind of how does the, how does this curriculum and the training that the volunteers do, how does that, how is that implemented in the schools? We have over 100 schools that are, that are now members of CAPS. And these schools receive priority scheduling of our programs. So most schools now know about the programs that we do. They know about the pro each of our programs is geared towards a different grade level or age level. Um, so they are developmentally appropriate for certain grades. And um, so schools will contact us and request programs for their students in, in certain grades. So it's a, um, it's a situation, it's, we have a system now in place after all these years of matching a trained volunteer, a volunteer who has been trained by us in special programs, a trained volunteer who will then go into a school to present that program to kids in that school in classrooms for that particular grade where the program so when you speak about being, um, you know, physically there in schools, can you talk more about the connection that CAPS has to the greater Long Island community? Since you guys have been around for a while and people know who you guys are. In addition to our prevention through education programs, we do a number of other programs as well. So, for example, we run a um, what we call our SUS program, Students United for Safe Schools. And what we are doing with that program is we are... Um, helping schools establish teams of uh, leadership teams that are dealing with um, anti-bullying and anti-cyberbullying messages. And they survey their students in the high school, and then they create messages and videos and activities, and ultimately they might um, create lessons that they present to younger kids. So uh, that's one of the other programs we have. We have a bully prevention center uh, which where we're providing services and strategies to parents and kids and educators who experience egregious cases of bullying and cyberbullying. And we're trying to get our message out to all of Long Island that we're there to help. So what would you say has been, in your time working, kind of the biggest, one of the biggest victories for CAPS? Like you guys did something or accomplished something and you were really just happy with the work that you were doing. 
I think one of the um, one of our greatest achievements is our development of our bully prevention programs and bully prevention center. Uh, before the whole issue of bullying uh, was on the front page of the of the newspapers and uh, you know across the airwaves, um, this is something that we had looked into and really felt that it, there was a concern and a need out there before Columbine, before everybody was talking about bullying. And I'm very proud of the programs that we've developed that are really making a tremendous difference in the lives of kids. CAPS will be awarding journalist Gretchen Carlson with the Community Leadership Award next week, I believe, at your event. So what kind of work in the community has she done to earn such an award? Can you tell us more about uh, the event? Okay, so what we, you know, every, we Every year, we hold a, an annual spring luncheon in April in recognition of Child Abuse Prevention Month. So actually, April is Child Abuse Prevention Month, Sexual Assault Prevention Month, Volunteer Recognition uh, Month, so all of those things. And every year that we hold this luncheon, we honor a person with our Community Leadership Award, which... At, basically acknowledges uh, someone whose words or actions or leadership have helped raise the profile of um, abuse on kids and, and adults. And so in recognition of her leadership, um, we've awarded this year Gretchen Carlson with our Community Leadership Award. And for those who are familiar with the... the uh, the whole issue of sexual harassment, the Me Too movement, and everything that really has happened in the last, within the last year, Gretchen Carlson was at the forefront of the sexual harassment prevention movement. Uh, for those who are unfamiliar with her, she, um, she worked at Fox and uh, was severely sexually harassed by uh, Roger Ailes and filed a lawsuit against him and won a $20 million lawsuit against, against him for uh, the sexual harassment that she um, endured during her time there. Uh, she's also the, uh, the author of an acclaimed uh, book, uh, Be Fierce, Stop Harassment and Take Your Power Back. And um, she is working now with, uh, in terms of changing legislation to prevent sexual harassment. Our, this is a luncheon, correct? That this is a, our luncheon is on April 19th. It's at the Garden City Hotel. And um, in addition to uh, Gretchen Carlson being honored, we will also be honoring the New York Mets, who are doing really well these days. Um, but we're honoring them because they have been working with us for the past three years in craft, helping us craft our anti-bullying message. They've created a number of public service announcements for us, and uh, they help sponsor a, an, an anti-bullying video contest among high school students and the winning uh, uh, video. Uh, the team that creates the winning video goes to City Field in May uh, to receive an award and have their, um, their video aired on the Jumbotron. And this is the third year that we're doing that as well. How many years have you guys been doing the luncheon and, and giving these awards? Okay, so this is our 33rd year for... Uh, for this luncheon, 
and um, every year it gets bigger and better. Is there anything else that you would like our listeners to know about CAPS? Well, I certainly would like your listeners to know if they are dealing with an issue of bullying or cyberbullying or have a question about abuse, harassment, or date rape, or if they are working in a school or a parent who would like their school to have a CAPS program, please get in touch with us at www.capsli.org. That's C-A-P-S-L-I.org. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks once again to our executive producer, Naila Andre, for that story. Now, here's a piece from Getting to the Root contributor Marley Delaney about a nonprofit organization committed to rebuilding Nepal after that devastating earthquake a few years ago. Here's Marley Delaney. In April of 2015, a massive earthquake of 7.8 magnitude hit the nation of Nepal. A 7.3 magnitude aftershock followed in early May. As the worst natural disaster to impact Nepal in the past 80 years, around 9,000 people were killed and nearly 23,000 were injured. Millions of Nepalese citizens today are still homeless and trying to find shelter. In addition, many of the educational facilities that are continuing its operations in temporary structures have unsafe and unsanitary conditions, and many children still have little to no access to education. My name is Marley Delaney, and today on Getting to the Root, I have two special guests with me, Dan Maurer and Anthony Mancini, founders of a nonprofit operating in Flagstaff, Arizona, called Elevate Nepal. Dan and Anthony are longtime friends from their alma mater of St. Bonaventure University, and now they are implementing earthquake relief efforts with promotional assistance from several student groups in Hofstra University's public relations program. Dan and Anthony, welcome to the show. Thanks, Marley. Thanks for having us. What is the mission of Elevate Nepal? Right now, we focus on rebuilding infrastructure that was damaged in the 2015 earthquakes to try to provide people with the uh, basic needs. So we are focusing on education, sanitation, and housing facilities right now to kind of help people continue to recover from the earthquake. And then when we're doing these projects in the community, we try to set them up as best we can to uh, you know, facilitate a sustainable community far into the future. That's awesome. What inspired you guys to go out and help the people of Nepal? What inspired us? So we first went to Nepal in 2011. Um, Anthony dragged me over there, more or less just to have a look around. We spent 30 days hiking to Mount Everest Base Camp. Then we volunteered on farms for two months after that fell in love with the country, the landscape, the geography, um, but most importantly, the people. And we always wanted to do something in Nepal, some sort of nonprofit or ecotourism, cultural immersion type of program. But when the earthquake hit in 2015, we kind of stopped talking about it and actually started to do it. So we had a lot of friends that were devastated by the earthquake, and we knew what a hardship a lot of the country had, is going through um, as we're watching the footage on TV. So we ended up doing a private fundraiser, um, and I was on the ground about four months after the earthquake helping to rebuild structures. So just the passion for the country and the people is really what made us go back and stem to elevate Nepal. 
What are the differences between remote work, work that you're doing back in Flagstaff, Arizona, versus actually in Nepal? The difference uh, in working in Nepal versus in the States is you have a massive cultural difference, of course, but um, just access to tools and resources. Most of the work done in Nepal is done with simple hand tools of a hammer, a pick, a shovel, and everything is built from the ground up just with those tools. So if you needed to clear out debris or rubble in America, you can just get an excavator, some piece of big equipment, and you can clear that out in maybe a half hour. The same amount of work that would be done in Nepal might take three or four days because you're moving everything by hand. So it's a much slower pace of work and much more um, physically demanding just based on the lack of equipment you have. What are some of the steps that need to be taken when developing a nonprofit? Dan and I have a big focus on being fairly creative when it comes to fundraising. As far as registering a business and starting up an actual nonprofit, that stuff's pretty easy. I mean, you can more or less just pay your fees, fill out some forms, and the government will approve you for having any type of entity. But where uh, the creative part comes in and uh, the successful part of our organization is definitely riding on. Dan and uh, my current efforts to uh, raise funds and be creative. Um, you know, being two 31-year-olds who started a nonprofit to help people halfway around the world, we definitely have a gigantic uphill battle day after day, month after month. So what we've been able to accomplish in the last 15 months has been pretty phenomenal. We, uh, we've started importing a lot of handcraft items from Nepal. We've been to a lot of events around the Southwest USA and uh, kind of raise awareness and tell a story about the products that we bring back from Nepal and then sell those to generate revenue. We've been trying to get a lot of presentations. We hosted a big Lebowski charity bowling fundraiser, um, something that has never happened in this town that we live in before. So, you know, we're trying to always remain creative and trying to stay relevant in the different circles that we operate in because you know, it's a cause halfway around the world. So it takes takes some time to get people's attention towards it. So it takes a lot of hard work from Dan and I to kind of show people that we're serious about what we're doing. And, you know, we need to wake up every morning at, and start working at seven, eight o'clock in the morning. And we don't know what's going to come out on the other end of it, but we kind of have our goals set of what we need to do to have another successful day and move forward to reach our goals. As you two earned college degrees from St. Bonaventure University, how did the skills you obtained from your alma mater lead you to where you are now with Elevate Nepal? Dan and I both developed a greater passion for traveling and uh, humanitarian efforts while we were in college. Uh, We're both business administration majors with bachelor's degrees. And, uh, you know, those skills have definitely helped us a little bit from what we learned at St. Bonaventure, but I would say Overall, the skills we've learned in the workforce have definitely been probably more beneficial as far as uh, being able to create and run and maintain this business and watch it grow. Um, You know, nothing, nothing truly, nothing can really be real life experience outside the internships and, you know, job experience and working in different enterprises for different managers and different companies and kind of getting a very well-rounded set of skills to be able to handle whatever might come up. So school was definitely beneficial as far as uh, 
teaching you some of the necessary skills. And like I said, we definitely cultivated our passion for traveling and for other cultures and for humanitarian efforts while we were in college. So that combined with workforce experience has definitely gotten us to where we're at. Why are you guys seeking collaboration with college students? Even though college students may not have the best personal funding, how do you think that the college community will be able to help elevate Nepal? So we have kind of just stumbled into this as we were trying to promote our cause and raise awareness for our cause. We started kind of doing some talks for some of our friends who are professors at universities that deal with classes in conflict management. So he wanted to use our organization as an example of how we do work in a third world country and what we experience while trying to do this work in the wake of a disaster and also with the current political conditions. So, you know, we uh, never knew where it was going to go. We kind of were just starting to reach out to raise awareness and continue to create some more chatter about what we have going on. Um, the more people we met in the uh, in this world, in the university world, Professor Damiano included, we kind of started to talk and see about what we could do to kind of partner together to work on a project together. And I mean, working with college students is phenomenal. Everybody's got a, a great drive to succeed. Everybody's getting close to entering the the real world and where they're going to start careers or possibly postpone a career to do something else for a little while and learn a different way. So, you know, it's, it's an exciting time to be able to share what we're doing with students and kind of see if we can inspire some people to think a different way and approach the world a different way and, you know, not be, send the message across to not be afraid to follow your dreams and, take a chance at something that's a little different than what everybody else is doing. So for Dan and I, it's it's fun for us because we get to work with people and influence folks and some new energy and some new ideas. And we can also kind of learn, too, about different ways to market our campaign and what we have going on and stuff that Dan and I might not all be in the certain vein of thinking about because we're so focused on certain demographics and so focused in one vein of what we're doing that you know, it's nice to get some other people's opinions, especially a group of 20 students. When people go on the website for Elevate Nepal, the website says Kegarne. What does this signify? Kegarne is almost a mindset that the Nepalese people have, and the literal translation is what to do. I heard this dozens and dozens of times a day after the earthquake. You go out to these villages that were completely destroyed and people living under tarps and say, oh, my God, the damages, the damages. There's so there's so much destruction here. And they would they'd say, oh, okay, Garnet, okay, Garnet, oh, what, what to do? Kind of what can you do? And I think this is just how they live their life. They're, Nepal is such a unique corner of the globe with many sh struggles just day to day. But nobody gets uh, stressed out about it or, or agitated. It's just the way um, they have to live their lives to keep things moving forward. So if something bad happens, instead of uh, being worried or showing frustration, it's just, eh, que garnet, eh, what, what to do? What to do, man? So I, I love this mindset of, of the Nepalese people, and that's one of the things that keeps coming, bringing me back to Nepal. It's definitely a beautiful mindset to have. Even though everything's gone, 
everything's not gone. Like you still have things that matter to you around you and you can be resilient with that. Would you be able to elaborate a little more on like what groups are doing at Hofstra? You guys mentioned crowdfunding. Yeah, so what anybody can do to help out us at Elevate Nepal, whether you can make a donation or not, um, following us, liking us on social media, that's always a great way to help us raise awareness and kind of extend our outreach for being able to qualify for future grants or just having, showing people that, you know, we are a legitimate organization that is planning on existing for a long time. So anything anybody can do to help us on social media, that'd be phenomenal. Um, the crowdfunding campaign that the students at Hofstra are working on is something great that anybody can help out with, whether you have money or not. So one of the best ways to kind of access a greater outreach of people is to have folks help us by sharing the campaign. So, you know, take a look at what we have going on. And if, if you can give five bucks, that's great. If you can't give anything, please just click the share button and tell your friends about what's something cool that your friends at Hofstra are doing that help people halfway across the world. So right now we have, I think, yeah, four different groups from Professor Damiano's class that are helping us and get it out to as many people as they can over the next 30 days. The campaign's going live on April 1st and it'll go until the end of the month. So we're basically having the students research Nepal, research Elevate Nepal and see what we're doing, why we're helping, what the needs are of the country. And uh, then we had everybody kind of help us put together the campaign. And now we're going to launch it and then market it to relevant organizations and people that are able to help us reach a broader audience. So, yeah, I'm pretty excited to get this going and see what we can all accomplish together. Um, to Dan and I, it's it's a pretty incredible thing to have a group of 20 students from Hofstra trying to help us put kids back in school in Nepal that are less fortunate than them. So, you know, it's a great cause and uh, we're, we've been having fun working with you guys doing it. How can our listeners reach out to you and get more involved with Elevate Nepal? Go to our website. It's elevatenepalinc.org. Um, you can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram, Elevate Nepal Inc. Um, we'd all check out this upcoming uh, crowdfunding campaign. The uh, Hofstra students have organized it through CROM, so it's crowdrise.com backs, backslash Hofstra helps Nepal. If you can at least remember to get to our website, elevatenepalinc.org. You'll find a plethora of information about our organization, the work we do. Um, also contact information for Anthony and myself, Dan. Um, and we're always looking to hear from new people who are interested in support the cause. So thank you everybody for your support. Help us spread the need for the dire need of help in Nepal itself. Dan and Anthony. Thank you so much for speaking today with me about your nonprofit work for Elevate Nepal and for inspiring college students to make a difference in the world. I hope there is great success in your fundraising efforts, and I will make sure to donate at www.crowdrise.com slash Hofstra Helps Nepal. With Getting to the Root, I am Marley Delaney. Thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Getting to the Root. We'd like to thank all the musicians whose music was featured on today's show. 
Specifically, we'd like to thank Ryan Little and Lobo Loco. All of their music was accessed via the Free Music Archive at freemusicarchive.org. Don't forget, you can stream Getting to the Root wherever you get your podcasts. We are also distributed on PRX, the public radio exchange, at prx.org. And you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash gttrshow. From all of us here, thanks for listening. 